0: Hello, Channel Pros. Here's a big challenge almost everyone in the channel has to face. How do you get direct sellers to embrace partners? Whether you're just starting and building a channel or you've got a long-standing partner program, you're going to have sellers who just don't understand the value partners bring or don't know how to engage partners effectively. That's the question we're going to answer today. Welcome to the Channel Journeys Podcast. I'm Rob Spee, your cycling, sailing, and partner ecosystem fanatic and your host of Channel Journeys. Today's guest, she knows all about that challenge. She stood up a global channel organization in a company that had been selling 100% direct for 20 years. It was a monumental task, both from a human and systems perspective, with everything designed for direct sales. Today, you're going to be hearing from Jules Johnston. She is the SVP of Global Channels at Equinix, a massive digital infrastructure company with over $7 billion in revenues. You're going to hear how she succeeded in gaining the mind share of both her direct sellers and the partner community. Before we dive into my conversation with Jules, I want to give a shout out to ImPartner, the sponsor of Channel Journeys. Building a partner ecosystem requires a powerful partner management solution. And with a global user base of over 4 million partners, ImPartner is recognized as the global leading provider of partner management technologies. Their platform offers powerful capabilities like program compliance tracking and customizable partner journeys, enabling partner teams like yours to quickly move from program design to maximum time to value. All right, are you ready to get your sellers to embrace the channel? Let's go.
1: Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure.
0: Hey, Jules, good afternoon and welcome to the Channel Journeys podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Ah, you're very welcome. Where are you hunkered down today?
1: I am speaking to you from New Hampshire.
0: From New Hampshire. Okay, great. Awesome. Are you up in the mountains?
1: At uh, Lincoln, Lincoln, New Hampshire on the side of Blue Mountain.
0: All right. Very nice. Perfect. Well, lots of things I want to talk to you about, Jules. You and I talked earlier. You've got a, an interesting background, an interesting challenge that you've been overcoming, I think, at Equinix. At but maybe we can just start out with people that aren't familiar with your company. And I know you as a data center company. From what I understand, you have hundreds of data centers around the globe. What all are you offering your customers and your partners today?
1: It's a great question because I think, and you know us as a data center company, and we do have 250 physical data centers around the globe, but we really consider ourselves a digital infrastructure company. So we are offering a physical and a digital platform on which customers and partners can chart and execute their own digital transformation. What customers do with Equinix is because we have the most direct on-ramps to the hyperscalers, customers will put their infrastructure, physical infrastructure at Equinix proximate to the public cloud on-ramps and they'll put their private cloud or their private applications at an Equinix location and they'll use us as a jumping off point to go to the cloud. So that's what many customers do. And so that's one of the reasons that, so increasingly Equinix is, for example, a really good home for private AI applications that companies want to keep private, but not put in the public cloud. And yet for their, their own needs, they need to be close to that and have that flexibility of choice. So I guess one other way you could think about Equinix is if we have 250 locations around the globe. That Every company defines their own edge differently, but they can use the Equinix footprint to chart their own edge and just pick and choose the Equinix locations that would be the best manifestation of the edge to get close to their customers, their partners, their suppliers. So we are a home for people to create their edge. We are a home for their AI. We are a way to future-proof their public-private cloud choices. And we do that in network of data centers that you know us for.
0: Okay, good. Thanks for explaining that. And the company's been around for about 25 years. Is that right?
1: Exactly. In fact, we just celebrated our 25th year anniversary.
0: All right. Excellent. Congratulations. And the first, was it, 20 or so years, you were a direct organization, Selling Direct.
1: Yes, that 18 years of the 25 before we even had channel conversations. <laughs> so we really, just really in the last five years, demonstrating a really serious commitment to growing our channel program and improving our global channel partnerships. And so that's, that's really fairly recent in our history.
0: Did you join the company specifically in a channel role? When you started, you've been there about eight years now, right?
1: I did. I came as the first at the company's first channel sales leader in and really started in the Americas building from the ground up that channel sales motion. and then in the last two and a half years, we really expanded our global effort and globalized the channel effort. And so you know, we're now some 200 people working on the channel effort, but just you know eight years ago, it was about a half a dozen of us.
0: Wow, that's a big team that you've got now. So this is what I want to dive into because I think this is fascinating and, and other people have been through this too, taking a, a company from direct to channel and it's a big undertaking, particularly with a company of your size. You're a public company, very large established business. So I want to dive into that with you. What were some of the things just getting started that you had to do? to get the channel motion going.
1: It's really interesting. It's, it's fun to look back and see how far we've come. But, you know, in the beginning, as you might imagine, especially when a company in Equinix was, was fortunate to be very successful directly, it, they had contemplated and, and instituted every system and process was for single tier. So you have to imagine every billing, every forecasting, all of those kinds of mechanisms didn't contemplate two tier for channel. And so, you know, that's not just important from a, a tracking compensation, but it's also, it just adds painful layers of surfacing the results of that early activity because that visibility is not natural into what's happening sort of, when your systems and your processes aren't naturally tracking it. And it's very manual. Uh, it's almost as much work to do the work as it is to surface visibility into the work in the early days so that, you know, so that people start to get on board with the mission and start to see some of those early results. So I often reflect on how much work it was to share what we were doing um, in the early days. And then, you know, I think, Rob, also you have a direct sales model where in those kinds of models, account ownership is like everything.
0: Yeah, that's my account.
1: That's my account. And it's, and all the activity is mine and mine, you know, so, so there's not this shared activity mentality that needs to occur with partners. And so so trying to bring that into the light was very, very hard. Also, because we were a direct sales company, there was almost no brand awareness in the channel, which means that, you know, when you're at that stage, and I'm sure there are partner executives who are listening who are thinking, when you're at that stage where you have no brand awareness in the channel, every conversation is a very heavy lift because you are probably not just educating them about Yourself and your company and your place in your market, but you might also be educating them about the category. And that was the case with Equinix. We were all of our early channel conversations with partners who had never resold co location as a category, had never quoted it, had never papered it, had never bundled it with anything else. And so there was a category lift discussion to then say, by the way, we happen to be the largest player here, but before. They and couldn't lead with that if they didn't understand the category and how they might dock in adjacent services. So in the beginning, that lack of brand awareness was super heavy lift. And, you know, we are very fortunate that we've been able to make such great strides there, but for sure, hard in the beginning.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. Let's dive into the sales force, that direct sales force. So how did you start getting their heads wrapped around more of a A growth mindset, a shared mindset, a partner mindset?
1: It's fast. And I have to say, I'm a career channel person. So I feel like I, in some ways, you know, sort of selling channel internally is our forever job. And I think there's probably a lot of partner people listening can relate to that. So, it, you know, coming to a company, you've been so successful directly and trying to convince them there was a better way, or at least an as good way to do that with channels and partners I was helped by this advice from a channel mentor who said, you know, people aren't against channel and they aren't against you. They're for themselves. And what we needed to figure out at Equinex to turn the tide was sort of how we made channel helpful and impactful for them and help them to see that. I didn't have any Equinex direct sellers who were anti-channel. I just had a lot who had never had a reason to be pro-channel. And so... I think if you approach it that way, rather than the, you know, those of us with deep channel DNA can be defensive and protective about channels high value, which we know dear. But I think, you know, first thing, align the compensation models before you get out of bed. I would say that has to be there or you just can't get people's mind, share and attention. So aligning the compensation models. But
0: Jules, how did you do that? What specifically did you do to align the compensation?
1: Institute a channel harmony where it would not be, To their disadvantage, it would be neutral for them to have a partner involved in their deal or not. And there are models, Rob, it's a good question, because there are models where companies have very successfully put their thumb on the scale pro channel and actually advantage channel engaged compensation over direct as a way of turning the mind share of that sales force. And I've seen that work very successfully. Equinix hasn't gone that far, but many companies, especially with new products that they might have experimented with or, pre, or pre-launched directly, will swing to a pro-channel incentive to get their sellers to be more uh, attuned to working with partners in that business. We made it neutral as a step one. And so that meant that the discount on the back end for the channel didn't hit the seller. The seller did just as well in their commission and in their credit for quota, whether or not it went direct or indirect. And that table stake, I submit to you that going through this process of turning a company that has been primarily direct into a pro-partner company, that you got too much to do to fight against not having chances of comp neutrality.
0: (laughs) Yeah, comp neutrality.
1: You don't need the waste cycles there because nobody's ever actually done that well having that as a major obstacle. So that's just my observation. But I do think then if you have the comp neutrality in place as a table stake, then I would say, you know, to get the hearts and minds, you said about sort of facilitating good experiences for those field sellers. And again, I was dealing with field sellers who'd been very successful for a very long time doing what they had been doing. And so they needed to see some reason to change. And it was two factors in helping them to see how they could do more and better with partners. One is the partners have to be the right partners with relevance. And it was hardest in the early days when Equinix's partners were a little bit, anybody who signed up with us, like in our year or two, it was really sort of who came to us as we were so small and growing our channel force. And as we have strategically honed our focus on partners with a a similar focus on large global multinationals and the reach in multiple regions who have adjacent services, as we've gotten better and better at that, as we've partnered with global systems integrators, for example, that intersects very well with what our field sellers are trying to help enterprises do. So they're trying to deal shape a customer's digital transformation. It intersects with partners who do the many, many, many things we don't do. So I think if you can, as you think about changing a mindset of a seller and if you're in the partner architecting business, your partner sales architecting business, you think about how do you make sure the partners you're bringing to the field sellers have relevance, add major value, have a reason to be there themselves. They're not doing it's in that partner's business interest. So getting that relevancy right, because otherwise it will never live on its own. You can make almost any sale happen through brute force with enough light and heat and personal attention. But for it to scale, it's got to have that staying power of the partner has a reason to be in it. The enterprise AE and sell those sellers see reason to keep working with the partner. The customer sees benefit in the combination customer has need of these things in combination. As you get good at that and bring that surface that, that will help to cement that first few learning experiences to facilitate working with partners. And I feel like our co-selling partners and our field really pivoted in the right way when we got close to right there.
0: Yeah, having the right partners.
1: You got to have the right partners for whom it, it is relevant to be there, who the customer sees value in your combination. Those two tests, I think, are really, really important. And then I was going to say, the second thing is, it's who you hire as, as partner sellers. And my leadership team and I talk a lot about this. You know, we're, we are uh, are wanting people who are sort of the right cocktail of patience and tenacity and positive persistence, because when you're going through a, A transformation of mindset and a transformation of selling motion. You know, there's going to be choppy water, and you want to have people who sort of have the right EQ to ride through that. And also people who are, for us, and especially in the last two years, the people that we've hired have been just a very channel savvy passionate about partners, passionate advocates for their partners internally. And that really, that comes across to our field sellers, that we're proud of these partners that we're asking them to engage with, and that we want them to make sure they do Equinox proud in honoring the rules of engagement and showing up for them. So that partner-seller DNA ownership, that EQ in our team, I think has been as critical as to picking the right partners and focus.
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I want to ask you about going back to the sellers and kind of that direct seller mindset where they felt like they own the account. They're in control. You're a public company, so you have, you know, targets that you have to hit. The sellers are held accountable to that. How do you deal with, particularly, you mentioned GSIs, the global system integrators. They operate at a totally different pace, right? They have, you know, billion-dollar accounts with these customers. How do you handle that and the, and the sellers working with them and they can get very impatient that it's not moving as quickly as they would like?
1: And ab- you're absolutely right. So uh, one, I think that there's a myth out there that it's, you can close business faster and easier directly. And I would submit to you, you can close, you might be able to close an individual transaction faster and quicker. But in terms of maximizing the opportunity at the account, closing a bigger deal And being more strategically integrated in the company's journey and, and seeking all of the adjacent appropriate opportunities for business that you can participate in. I haven't seen that happen as well directly as indirectly because, you know, over the course of my career, many, many times I have, I've lost count of the number of times that initial new partner AE working relationship at a customer feels like it's frustrating that the former direct seller, because it's slowing it down a little bit. And it, it, it seems like we just can't take this business off the table by quarter end or month end. And the number of times I have seen that become a bigger deal and multiple deals as you get more embedded into the customer, as you and the partner together become trusted, and as you dock into the other things that we don't do. And so you're now aware of the network transformation project, or you're now aware of, of their AI application evaluations, or you're now aware of their edge rollout and those kinds of things. And it's, you know, that that I love watching people come to that acknowledgement and appreciation and seeing, I would say now I see that among the ranks of Equinex's top sellers, there is a really pretty high sophistication and appreciation of partners and making the deals bigger even if they don't make that one transaction faster. But I also, I have channel team also working on that in this way. One of the fears is, is not just loss of control, it's also that what they don't know. And so one of the things that we try in our channel sales team to do to allay the concerns about the unknown, that what's going on behind the wall at the partner, at my customer, I don't have vis into that. That can be discomforting, especially if they're forecasting. And forecasting directly is a you know sort of leap of faith at some point compared to forecasting directly. So how do we how reduce that unknown? And so I call it the path to paper. And so we have a conscious effort to confirm the path to paper on the transaction that's going to be indirect, educating our direct seller or field seller on that path to paper, and so that they understand, look, this is where the partner sees it in their forecasting system. This is what, these are the gating factors. These are the signatures from the customer and from the partner that we will be expecting to get it back here. And so that education is, can be very helpful, that path to paper. And then the other thing we take super seriously is our channel sellers. Take and trust that you know the A- the AES that are working with end customers have put so much time into deal shaping, and when they get that customer verbal yes or the customer signs the partner's paper, we will stop at nothing to make sure that paper doesn't sit in the partner's desk by and not get to us by the time the bell rings for that quarter for that A. So we really put ourselves right there in that okay. You're getting the end customer to yes. They sign the customer's paper. We're going to have the partner queued up to pass that paper to us, even if it's New Year's Eve. And so we really own that and and try to build trust with our direct sellers by confirming we'll be there for them on that paper. We will make sure we own that process.
0: Yeah, that's so important, Jules, that path to paper, I think, and educating the rep so that they are forecasting accurately, because if they're forecasting kind of based on their direct experience, they could be calling it much earlier than than realistic. And then everybody's in hot water.
1: Yep, that's right. And, and I, I also say then there's a little bit of old fashioned making sure you make heroes out of the early adopters. I don't think that's new. We've gotten some cool new ways to do it with little video clips and and those kinds of things. But we do what I think a lot of companies do in that situation and hold up as channel champions the best of the sellers who are making that making that transformation and their successes as a lesson to the others. This is replicatable, and so we work hard to do that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Holding up those success stories is so important. You mentioned your team and you've got a very large team. What's the makeup of the team? What type of people do you have that drive all of this?
1: So we have called the partner sales managers who are assigned to around the globe to cover production with those partners. And in most cases, those partners are papering it with Equinix, but they might also be referring that business to us. They might also be and in it following an agent model. So there are a couple of different types of partners that we work with, but the partner sales manager's job is to work with that partner and drive production. And you know, we have as a as a remit, we we also do this in close concert with a lot of technology alliances. And so, you know, partners like Dell, HPE, and Cisco, where we're highly collaborative and compatible, and we're not competitive with those folks, we are instead we have partners in common. And so we will work very closely, those PSMs in the field will work closely with partners in common, which is a strategy. I think I've seen lots of, of partner executives kind of swirling around which are the right partners in common to align to. But the PSMs, we call them globally, they carry quota for that partner's production. And then they have you know a leader, a partner sales leader might have five or six of those. Those roll to regional vice presidents of channel. So I have a vice president in Europe, a vice president in Asia, and a vice president in the Americas that manage our partner sales leaders and our extended partner sales managers, the quota bearing heads who are trying to drive Equinex's partner production.
0: Are those sales independent of of the direct sellers or is it all a co-sell motion?
1: It's a sell with motion. So what we do when deal registration comes in is identify which AE is carrying quota for this account. So if we get As we get a deal reg in, our Salesforce, SFDC can tell us this AE in this geography is carrying quota for this account. And we engage that seller with the partner who's brought in the lead in their account.
0: So your partner seller then is is helping to drive that engagement with the rep. That's right. That makes sense. What have you done over the years to keep growing this? What kind of initiatives have you put in place to, to keep this moving forward?
1: So for myself or for the channel?
0: For the channel. Yeah. F- to keep the channel business growing. You got you came in, you got started from nothing and you keep growing it year after year.
1: You know, I, so I'd say in the beginning, to be very honest, we were really catching up on table stakes. I used to joke that I, and so if you're out there and you're having to, to launch channel at your company and you feel like there are many basics that you might've taken for granted at other jobs. And I used to, I used to joke that I didn't have a new idea for the first two years because I was really just trying to catch us up to the kinds of things partners would expect. Partners expect deal registration, rightfully so. Partners expect rules of engagement. They expect a portal. They expect, you know, an SLA and your response to them. They expect a a rate card. They, Rightfully so. So all those kinds of things were those things becoming available And really gave partners a means to interact with Equinus, gave us kind of our first tranche of growth. In terms of continuing to grow, I would say some of the best work we've done has been to, it harkens back to something I said earlier about sort of finding which partners are most relevant for your customers and your sales force. We had, we had a bit of a wide net. Let's catch. Whoever's interested in working with us as our small ragtag team is getting started. And then, as we got some of those table stakes in place and felt ourselves, you know, frankly worthy of pitching some larger partners, it was still in most cases new for those larger partners to align with Equinex. But we were, as we were able to get some of those marquee big brands working with us, we so narrow the number of partners that we dedicate quota bearing heads to and go deeper with those. So the growth has actually come from fewer partners and focus on, say, a top kind of 30 globally, maybe 50, 70, you know, if you include regional partners that really do the majority of our production and as opposed to hundreds that might have shown a passing interest. And so that focus growth has been good. We've been able to get more muscle memory of doing repeat business and repeat deals. And I've I've seen this before, but I learned early at Equinix, too, it's very, very difficult to get that first deal done with a partner. But a partner who can do 10 deals can do more, you know, 20, 30 more. That first deal is so, so much work. And so we've been kind of following that model.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of us are, Jules, realizing that's that quality over quantity and really having that focus mindset. How many partners do you have overall? Do you have a long tail as well?
1: We do. And so we do have people, partners bring business to us. We have a means to accept and and do that with them. And so, but in terms of that, I would agree, that's more of a long tail model than it is those that we assign a partner sales manager to carry quota to drive their production. And so, you know, even the small, medium-sized partners to those, that's sub-75 and, Really, the lion's share of our people are pointed at the top thirty or so oh,
0: okay, good what's you know there's a lot going on in the marketplace these days, you know, and it's even in just one year has made a huge difference in kind of shifts in the market. what's impact is that having on your your partner journey?
1: a massive impact the you know in terms of major changes and shifts that are impacting our business the Enterprises have, by and large, decided they want to get out of the data center business. So they are looking to either migrate out of that their own data center business, or they might have made a poor choice of a data center that isn't able to keep pace with their sustainability requirements or that isn't in financially strong position. So their data center exits, data center migrations are very much a hot topic right now we benefit from being a very stable, financially secure, you know, so some 77, 78 consecutive quarters of growth that allows us to make the most substantive investments in the sustainability requirements that are going to be future required and are now part of RFPs all the time now. So that has helped our business and continues to support us. I would say that sustainability just even of itself the choice for Equinox has been helped by the fact that customers are vastly more savvy about carbon neutrality and are looking for evidence they can provide their board of how different supplier choices they make are helping to green their supply chain. So if they can demonstrate that they're reducing their power consumption, if they can demonstrate that they are making progress against those initiatives to their board, that's a real advantage. So working with companies, and we're not the only ones that, you know, the Dells and HPEs of the world are equally committed to this kind of thing, but working with Equinix and, and others can be, can be very, very helpful. That becoming sort of, that is now part of every conversation. And that wasn't the case a few years ago. So that change has benefited us. And I, then I would say that the, the two other things, the, the fact that AI is now in every conversation with enterprise customers, And we're a really good home for private AI, and that is that that helps. But also that you know this word ecosystem, Rob. This word is now everybody's everybody references an ecosystem, and you know Equinix actually was already an ecosystem centric company 25 years ago. The company came together to have the networks peer neutrally. So they would come to a neutral place. we had the first ecosystem of the network service providers. Years later, we had the, the ecosystem of all the low latency requirement required high frequency trading. So you have a NASDAQ and an IZ and all of these kinds of folks in Equinix with the ecosystem of the folks that also benefit from that low latency adjacency, those ecosystems then it was the content providers, then it was the clouds. And so we're an ecosystem company. And that is, I think, if partners aren't talking about sort of what, how they play in the ecosystem, how partners play with other partners in the ecosystem, yeah. I'd be surprised. And so I think partner executives in their programs need to think about the fact that their partners are in the very stages of participating in their own ecosystems. And things are changing for our channel partners fast. And so being in a platform where they have the flex to interact with others who maybe participate in a different piece of the value equation that they do in a faster, more accessible way for our customers, easier ways to knit their solutions together in a platform so that their own ecosystems can thrive. Uh, you know, I, mean, I think that that's, that's a way that vendors can help partners. And, and we're certainly trying to do that.
0: Yeah. Interesting. We talk a lot about partner ecosystems. I think to be really successful as a company, you have to have a platform partner ecosystem strategy. And it sounds like you had a platform ecosystem right out of the gate, and now you're building the partner ecosystem around it.
1: That's right. And we're fortunate because we had a physical platform to build upon to which we could add layer on digital services. And so that we could have sort of this physical and digital platform together, the combination of metal and edge and a fabric that you layer on a physical platform, which is as real helping people because they will need both. And so our platform is both two dimensions, is both those dimensions. And you're right. We're, we're very fortunate to have those.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. What role have any of your kind of personal values of how you approach the team impacted your success?
1: Well, I think that uh, when you're in build mode, you know, it helps that you're somebody willing to roll up your sleeves and do it yourself or that you have done it. And so I'm a career channel person. I was briefly a chief of staff for a few years. Wonderful learning experience. But other than that, you know, thirty years in the channel and so there's not too many channel selling roles that I or situations I haven't also been in. And I think that brings a lot of so natural empathy and and relatability to the challenges. And I've built channels a few times, but I not never at this scale until now. But I do. I think that is is important that you're willing to do that. I I, I myself strive to be sort of equal parts demanding and warm. And I hope that it comes across as as supportive as it is demanding. That's certainly my intent. In, from a personal values perspective, those that those guide me, and I'm also I have been mentored and sponsored by some absolutely outstanding role models, and the only way I can think of to pay them back is to pay it forward, and so I do try to try to remember that and try to make the time for people the way that people made time for me.
0: Well, I hear Jules that you're a, a very strong people advocate for people on your team. Can you give any examples? You don't have to be shy here. What you like to do.
1: people on my team and also just the general Equinix population, I do specifically try now to advocate for people with who are differently abled. People, I'm an executive sponsor of an employee connection network at Equinix called Connectabilities. And in full transparency, I was a little bit pushed out of the shadows about my own hearing loss. I wear hearing aids and I was a little bit pushed out of the shadows by a wonderful colleague who, because of something I said off the cuff, realized that I was hearing impaired and really kind of uh, woke me up to how much sort of being more vocal and speaking out about that might encourage others to feel more comfortable acknowledging any hidden or otherwise disability that they might have. And so I was spurred to be more vocal when I had myself been keeping that somewhat under wraps. And in the process of doing that, Equinox was simultaneously continuing to invest in its employee connection networks, and they were spinning up one on abilities. And I had the opportunity to sort of help a group of just amazingly dedicated employees, some on my team, some across the company. And and it spans from the neurodiverse to the chronically ill to people with physical disabilities, people who are caregivers. And so I do. I'm a passionate advocate for channel. But there's also, a, you know, so I have a special place in my heart for the people in this group and the people who care for them, who are uh, who come to the programming or bring questions to the forums that we are trying to provide, just to make it a little easier for everybody to bring their full self to work.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really brave, Jules. You know, I'm, I'm a even though I like doing podcasts, I'm a fairly private person, you know, and I don't I don't share things like that, and it takes a lot of courage, I think, to. share that, but it it has huge benefits.
1: Yeah, it really, it does. And so I credit Equinix. I was, you know, channel also, I noticed that partners and we are, this is somewhat new, but in the last few years, we've been doing impact events for our communities together. And I've been, you know, very proud to be part of Equinix is very committed to giving back. And I see that in our partners so much more often now in the last few years. And, uh, you know, kind of appreciate that, even in my day job, I get pulled into, delightfully so, opportunities to do good with partners and with Equinex. And I see a role for partner executives. If your company's not doing that together with partners, I think that's, a, that's another thing you can do. And it's a, it feel, feels good to work up with partners together on those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. And I bet it also just strengthens the relationships too, right? You know, which partnerships are all about relationships. And this is just another avenue for, for doing that and a good one.
1: And one of my favorite things about being in the channel is the longevity that you can have working together. And so I, you know, I've always found that, and I think you're right, these kind of impact events just sort of, they they help to build that, that intra-company tissue.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, outside of the channel, what sort of things do you love doing?
1: So I am, let's see, outside of the channel, I'm a wife and a mother and a daughter and a a sister. Uh, I have five siblings and I have 14 nieces and nephews. And so I am a busy part of my extended family, probably first and foremost, and that would that's where I, I that tends to be the club with which I do the things I like to do most, whether that's entertaining them at my home or planning kind of trips or gatherings for all of us. So I, that's an odd way to unwind.
0: <laughs> You're also the the senior leader of, of family connections, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, well, yes, and I'm not, they seem to tolerate it, okay.
0: <laughs> well, we all want someone to do all that work for us, right? So, it's great that you volunteer. <laughs> you must enjoy it. Well, that's fantastic, Jules. Before we leave, any last advice, any lessons you'd like to offer listeners, channel executives who are trying to do something like this, you know, really and kind of even if you're just starting to bring channel to a direct company, many, many of us in mixed environments where we do channel and direct, it's still a challenge. You still have sellers who who are resistant. Any other words of advice for us?
1: I'll give you a few, a few things that I have learned, Rob. So one would be, I think, whether you're finding a channel model you've inherited or building new, I would say don't try to handle all partner types of all sizes and all geos yourself directly. You know, I think that that we've gone through a bit of a journey working through that to prioritize. And that prioritization has paid off big time. It's been painful. And, you know, you, there's some leap of faith to invest in the bigger partner. Versus smaller partner might have contributed already, and so that. But if you have, if you're building for scale, uh, you know that that's really important, and that, I, that's been hard work for us, but I think it's worth it. And I think that's something I would say because the picking the right partners will pay off so palpably in your direct sales team's appreciation of that and the success they'll have together. That's really worth it, and so that's not being so transaction focused and more partnership development of of the right partners, I think is, is key. Yeah, you know, I think the other, when you're in those early stages, and you're seeing you've got things to battle, whether it's systems or process or mindset, compensation plans, it can be very, it, it can be, hard to find enough external partner facing time because there's so much work to do internally so to get your company pro partner and get your company your company ready to transact with partners and and get them ready to receive partners the way partners are expecting and to make sure the experience is going to be good for partners it can be easy to focus all your time on that you'd be doing good work for the partners but you wouldn't be balancing that necessarily with enough external facing time to keep current with partners and to use the, you know, sort of where partners are going to inform what you're building and what you're doing. And I get some really good advice from somebody who around this to color code your calendar, one color for external meetings with partners and one for, you know, the rest. And so I actually do that to this day. And I do try to make sure that even as the organization gets bigger, even as it can be easy to swing inside and focus internally for planning for the next year, that I've got enough partner touch in every week, if not every day. And so I think that does two things. It, I'm sure it makes me a better leader because I'm closer to what partners need and a better advocate for them. But it's also where I get my energy. So that fuel that comes from being with partners and with our team in front of partners, that's what keeps me going.
0: That's very good advice, Jules. I'm curious. So what color is internal and what color is partner on your calendar?
1: partners are most important so partners are red and then the the rest of the, the rest of the stuff is is a soft peach
0: a soft peach default
1: <laughs> color the rest of it's the default
0: color <laughs> yeah no I, I had heard that advice before and I, I was doing it for a while now i need to get it back cuz i know that i'm i'm focusing too much time internally and not enough externally and it's so easy to get, to get pulled into that cuz you're just trying to do so much internal evangelizing and communicating and aligning
1: yeah, I, it, I try to ask when I'm with the team about anything. It could be about an internal thing or an ext- external thing. I try to ask them, "Hey, when are you going to use me again? You know, with the executives at your partners, how can I help? Oh, who else are you using? Oh, you know." So just making sure, also as a whole team, that we're thinking a lot about that, and that we are also bringing, as you know, as Equinix grows, that we're bringing product leaders in front of partners, that we're bringing customer care leaders in front of partners. We have a wonderful global leader of our technical sales force making who spends time with partners. And so just making sure we also make those connections so that you know we spread partner DNA throughout the company.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Jules, thank you so much. I have a feeling we could talk for hours on this topic. There's so much to discuss, but congratulations on, on the success so far and best of luck in in the coming year for f- future growth.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Likewise. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit ChannelJourneys.com. If you liked today's show, please forward it to your channel friends and be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.
0: There you go, guys. Great advice on getting direct sellers to embrace the channel. Thank you, Jules, for sharing your story and congratulations on a huge accomplishment. I love the advice Jules got from her mentor. Direct sellers aren't against the channel or against you, they're just in it for themselves. You need to make the channel impactful and helpful for them. For all of today's show notes and links, go to channeljourneys.com slash CJ131. You can subscribe to Channel Journeys while you're there so you don't miss an episode. Also be sure to check out our sponsor, MPartner at MPartner.com. And what's coming up? Well, there is a ton of talk around the hyperscaler marketplaces, right? Well, next episode, you're going to hear about the future of distributor marketplaces. One distributor in particular, you don't want to miss it. Until then, have an awesome channel journey.